I encourage you to turn back in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2 if you have them. And uh, we'll have a little help here up on the walls as well. Kind of guide our thoughts and give us, kind of keep us together a little bit here. Again, we've been talking about all these wonderful aspects to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Christ, uh, what is He? Who is He? He's our Redeemer. Uh, He's the way. He justifies us. You know, all these different things we've been talking about on Sunday mornings. And uh, this will be our last in this particular series. Next Lord's Day uh, is July 4th. Say a little bit more about that in the announcement time at the end, but have sort of a a themed message with the patriotic uh, uh, theme there for next Lord's Day, and then starting a new series the week after that. And uh, excited about sharing a little bit about that with you as well. Uh, great things uh, seem to be happening here in the church. So thrilled with some of the enthusiasm, some of the fervency. You know, we're coming out of COVID-19. People are gathering back, enjoying being together. Isn't that a blessing? Amen? Isn't that a blessing? And um, uh, we've got our friends from the Anchorage camp uh, visiting with us here. And Mrs. Ulrich was just sharing with me beforehand, the first week of junior camp, they had 200. And I'm like, I didn't think the dining room held that many. And she's like, it doesn't, you know. (laughs) And they had them out into the assembly room and out into the snack shop. And I'm like, man, what a great problem to have, you know. These were all those moms that was like, okay, one summer with no camp. Everybody's going to camp, right? So anyhow, but I'll share a little bit more at the end uh, as far as the Anchorage camp and some things that maybe we can do as a, a caring church with regard to the Anchorage camp. Christ, our example, uh, from 1 Peter chapter 2, as we read uh, here in our uh, text this morning, and I'm going to begin really focusing around verse 21 in our Bibles, but as I was preparing this message and studying and thinking about an example, I was reminded of growing up as a child uh, and then also as a newly married husband watching both my mom and then my wife engaged in activity that is maybe a dying art in some ways, and that's the idea of sewing clothing okay, at home. Now, I know it's still done in a manufacturing sense, but uh, I was always fascinated watching this happen. One of the things that you have to really have, unless you're an amazing seamstress, is you got to start off with a what? you got to start off with a pattern. And, and I remember watching uh, both these ladies in my life take this, what to me was akin to like a tissue paper uh, material, and it would have printed on it, kind of like a blueprint almost. And it, it was neat. I mean, there was a little bit of an engineering that went into this so that one pattern could be used for multiple sizes within, you know, within some parameters there, we understand. And so it would have the, the basic pattern. And then, as you can see in this picture, it would have other lines going out and you would based on the size of the garment that you were making, you, you knew which size to pin it to and fold it. Uh, and some people just cut it out, but if you wanted to reuse it again, like uh, a lot of people do, you would fold it under, pin it, and then you'd cut the fabric out based on that. And I thought to myself, you know, man, 
this is an absolute important thing to have, you know, because if you don't want your, your dress to turn out like something off of I Love Lucy, uh, then you're going to need, you know, a pattern to go by. And there's so many different ways and analogies that we could use. But the point was that the basic pattern, even though you might be different sizes, was the same dress. Customize a little bit based upon the needs of the individual. And I thought, isn't that how it works as Christians? We're, we're all looking at the same Jesus. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's just that one Jesus. It's not that he's different, but, but we're different, aren't we? We're not all exactly the same. Now, some ways we're all the same. We're all sinners. We all, we all you know, have wrong thoughts. We all lose our tempers. We, we can be lazy. We can be gluttonous. You know, all these different things in our life that we realize, you know, these are not right things in my life. So the problem's not with Jesus. The problem's not with the pattern. But I might have some needs that you might not need. And you might have some needs in your life that Jesus can, you know, is customized to to meet your needs that I'm not struggling with. But it is still fundamentally the same Jesus that is given to us and revealed to us in our Bibles, right? That's what we need to understand as we are thinking through this process today. Jesus is changeless. He holds up an authoritative pattern for everyone to follow. So, when Jesus began His earthly ministry, He was having, right, 12 disciples. And as he would walk up, not to all of them, but remember a few of them, he would just walk up to these disciples right on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and it was like the first thing out of his mouth was an invitation, and he, and he asked them or invited them, or some would say even commanded them, what? Follow me, right? Follow me. Now, it's likely that they knew about Jesus. He was building in his popularity, and so maybe they had even been to hear him speak. We don't know. It could have been that he was a stranger to them, and, that, and there was just something very compelling about this stranger's plea, follow me. But I would say to us, we're all supposed to be disciples of Jesus, aren't we? We're all supposed to be followers of him. And we ought to hear that same command, that same invitation, follow me. We're still exhorted to do that when we come to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, where we're looking at today. And notice the example that he lays down for us in the context of his suffering. Now, nobody probably says, you know what, if you were to ask, say, what do you really aspire to in your life? I mean, if you could, you know, sort of a make-a-wish type thing, what would you like to have characterize your life? And you would, oh, 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 I know, I, I want a life of suffering. Yeah, I'm just, I've always wanted a life of suffering. We don't think that way, do we? You know, that, and, there, and, and if we were that way, and I'm not saying we should be that way or the Bible's saying that, but yet, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, a lot of what characterized his life was suffering. The climax of his life was what? Suffering. The climax was at the cross. And so we see suffering taking place. And isn't that what we're being told in verse 21? For even hereunto were ye called, but Christ, Christ also suffered for us. He did that for you and for me. And in doing so, he left us an example that we should do what? That we should follow in his steps. 
So therefore, what is the Bible saying? We need to be willing to go through life and experience suffering when it comes up, not looking for it. Okay, we're not some you know weirdos. There's like you know I got to go out. I haven't suffered enough. I need to do something to make my life harder. No, it will come naturally, right? The Bible says, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Uh, it, it's just built in. There's going to be problems. But we shouldn't kick against it, right? Is what the Bible is saying for us. Jesus always made decisions based on honoring the Father. Jesus always made decisions based on His eternal perspective, not just like the here and now, but how is this going to play out? How is this going to matter into eternity? And so we're called to a similar approach in life. It, it will always be good, but it may not always be easy when we make those kind of decisions. It will always be good, but it will not always be easy when we make those decisions. There's a, a book that I remember reading as a teenage boy. It really made an impression upon me. Some of you may have read this book. It's an excellent book. It's a novel, but by Charles M. Sheldon. He wrote this book many years ago that has become a classic. Millions of books have sold. And the book tells the story of how a pastor and his congregation committed themselves to following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. It was based on this verse that I've just been reading to you this morning from 1 Peter. And what he challenged his congregation to do was before making any decision, no matter how big or how small it was, is to first mentally ask themselves this question, what would Jesus do? You know, some of us have maybe seen those uh, silicone bands, you know, WWJD, and you thought, I wonder what that stands for. What would Jesus do? It was, it was a refurbishing of this same thought that comes back from this book to make us be thinking about that, keep that. What a great question to be constantly asking ourselves. What would Jesus do? Now, we have to avoid answering the question based on our, our own whims. Well, I think Jesus would just do this. We will only be able to answer that question accurately if we know the Jesus of the Bible. You know, I've heard some people saying, well, I don't think Jesus works that way. I'm like, well, you need to get in your Bible because clearly he does, you know. And, and a lot of times people just aren't in their Bibles. They're not in church. They're not... They're not being discipled properly. But this was the, the way the book went. And the title of the book was therefore called In His Steps. Very simple title, In His Steps. Christ is our motivation for living the Christian life, for we are being asked to do a difficult thing. And, and we don't have Jesus physically here with us like the disciples did, right? He's not walking in the back doors and coming up here, at Anchor Baptist Church and saying, you know, all right, now what has he done? He's, he's left us his word, he's left us the Holy Spirit, and he's given us opportunities like this where he reveals himself to us, but also in your personal quiet time as well. We have to be looking for him. So verse 3 is the command, it's the admonition, it's the exhortation. Walk in the steps of Jesus. And then you might be asking yourself, so, but how do I do that, right? How do I honor Christ as my example? And so we're going to look at the next three verses after this and answer those questions. We can honor Christ as our example if, first of all, we follow 
by avoiding viciousness in our life. Fault, we've got to avoid fault, viciousness in our life. Secondly, we need to follow by abandoning vindication. We'll talk a little bit about that. And then lastly, we need to follow by focusing on the victory. You've got to keep the, the finish line in mind, in other words. So let's go back to this first one. Follow by avoiding viciousness. What are we talking about? Well, let me reread verse 22 again, because right after it talks about following in his steps, verse 22 says, of Jesus, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Interesting description of Jesus Christ. And depending on what kind of Bible you might have with you today, you might have a cross-reference or some notes. And you might see the reference from Isaiah 53, verse 9, because it's actually pulling part of a verse from the Old Testament here. Now, let me read to you what Isaiah 53, verse 9 says. It's speaking of Jesus before he ever came as the Messiah, prophetically. It says, And he made his grave with the wicked. Well, we know he did that. He was buried for three days. He was in the tomb. And with the rich in his death. Remember, the tomb was by a rich man, right? Joseph of Arimathea never had been used. He's a wealthy man. And it says this, why? Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. No paybacks in the life of Jesus Christ, right? No, no sense of coming after. The life of Jesus did not contain anything that would bring blame to him. No one could point their finger, although they tried, and say, yeah, 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 Jesus, he's got this problem in his life. Yeah, he did this wasn't for lack of trying, but nothing could stick legitimately. Really, his reputation was irreproachable. Isn't that amazing? I mean, we have people that are put in the public eye that realize how important it is that they be irreproachable. And they can't do it, though they might try. They're, they're going to be people. In fact, the higher profile person you are, the, dig, the deeper people dig. I mean, they put together groups of people that are coming through newspaper articles and social media looking for the least bit of dirt they can find, you know? Always amazes me, you know, on politicians how someone will say something, they could put together these montages of contradictory statements, little sound bites all clipped together, right, one after the other, and it's like, whoa, you know? I mean, it just totally blew that guy's you know, character out of the water in what he did. And you think, you know, what if that was me? If someone was scrutinizing me like that, you know? I've, I've had my shortcomings for sure. But Jesus? No, not at all. Not even once. Isn't that amazing? Life of Jesus didn't contain anything that would bring blame to him. His reputation was irreproachable. And yet, it wasn't that people didn't come on and attack him anyway. You know, we are often guilty, and we still feel like we want to get even, don't we, when someone comes after us. How dare they say that about me? So, if we're going to follow the example of Christ, we're going to avoid viciousness, just like he did. It means that we should not have streaks of meanness. You say, oh, but I'm a southerner, I'm sweet, right? 
Yeah, but you know, you can, you can be sweet and you can still have a streak of meanness. You know, we just, we've learned how to do it more refined, right? And as one person said, you know, you can say about anything you want in the South about someone as long as you follow it up with, bless their heart, right? But notice it says in verse 22, who had no sin, literally no badness, or another way of saying no maliciousness. No maliciousness, not, and I've known some really sweet people, but there's always a button, right, that you can find in the sweetest of people's lives. There's a button that you can push. Now, I'm not suggesting trying to find it and push it, mind you. Jesus had no button to be pushed. You could not provoke him. Peter, Peter began this approach in the garden. He was not the right example. He, he was someone who was kind of vicious. Now, he might have felt vindicated. So what are you talking about? Remember Jesus, the night before he goes to the cross, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, guys, pray with me. They, they, don't, they don't do it. You know, they fall asleep. He comes to them a second time. They fall asleep again. And suddenly, all of a sudden, Roman soldiers are there. And Judas betrays them with the kiss. They're getting ready to haul off Jesus, right? They're taking him away. And one of the attendants that is there is the servant of the high priest, and the Bible names him in one of the Gospels by the name of Malchus. Now all of a sudden, Peter wants to come, rally up, right? And what does he do? He pulls out his sword, and he starts swinging, and as he does, he, he lops off the ear of Malchus. And, and Jesus, you know, in diffusing the situation, what does he do? He reaches down, picks up that ear, pops it up against, you know, heals it. I mean, it, I doubt there was even a scar, right? And then says, Peter, put up your sword. No, this isn't the time and place for that. Peter was ready to jump in this particular case. But Jesus not. He, he could have. But he didn't. He could have been mean. Uh, and also in that same story, you do see the power of Jesus because when the Roman soldiers approach him, they say, and, they, and the question is asked, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus. And Jesus just says, I am. And when he says, I am, what happens to all the soldiers? Dominoes, right? They just, I mean... Wouldn't you just love to see that? You know, I've said this before. When I get to heaven, someday I want to ask God, can, you, can I get video playback on certain scenes of the Bible? Just, just, I want to see what that looks like. I've tried to picture that in my mind. You know, was there a, you know, a gust of wind that didn't need to be? God could have just all of a sudden you know, taken the, the strength out of all their legs simultaneously, you know? And then, and then they come back again and ask, and Jesus responds, and it happens again, you know. Finally got wise and stopped asking the question, you know. But Jesus could have done something way more, right? He could have just disintegrated them all, but he didn't. What an example we have. It also says guile was not found. What is guile? Guile is deceit, duplicity, 
In the same way that we should not have streaks of meanness from looking at Jesus, we should also not have suspicious methods. Jesus was always very upfront. Okay? He wasn't sneaky. He wasn't underhanded. He was always very upfront with people. You know, sometimes in the workplace, employees take out lawsuits and settlements that might seem excessive. You know, we, we have people that work in areas of, you know, making sure people are honorable. And, and sometimes workers do need to be compensated for, you know, things that have happened in the workplace. We understand that. But there are also situations where people try to take advantage of that as well. And so I remember hearing someone talking about, you know, how they were, you know, trying to go well beyond what was probably proper compensation. And, and when I asked him, I said, you know, well, why are you going for, you know, that particular goal? It's like, well, you know, I want to make sure I teach my boss a lesson. And I'm thinking, is that, is that the goal? Is that a proper goal for them? Now, maybe the boss does need to be teach, taught a lesson. But I'm pretty sure that it shouldn't be achieved through, you know, workman's compensation or through disability or anything like that or lawsuits. You know, we shouldn't be saying, well, you know, and you might have even friends that will tell you, you need to make them regret. Maybe you've been offended by someone and now you're talking to friend C about friend B. And they're like, you know, oh, yeah, they should never have done that to you. They should never have said that about you. You need to get them back. You need to make them regret that. Is that Christ-like advice, folks? It's not. Jesus had no guile in him. There's a hymn that says that he could call 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. Talking about when he's on the cross. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. But the point is, he didn't. Why? Because there's no viciousness in Jesus Christ. Now there's justice and there's judgment, and Jesus will certainly judge the wicked someday. But he's not going to do it in the Spirit. It's like, hmm, remember me? Okay, the one that you ignored? Okay, I am now going to make you pay. You know, Jesus will be sending people to the lake of fire and hell with brokenness. Why? Because God loved the world so much that he sent his son to die. That whosoever would believe on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to salvation. That's the heart of God, right? God is a just God, and ultimately, if people refuse Jesus as a Savior, they will have to face Him as judge. But He will not be using it in a vindictive, mean-spirited way. We could take a lesson from our Lord, can't we? We need to say, yes, help, help there not to be a malicious approach in my attitude, and my mindset. Help me, even in my mind, you know, and sometimes we do this. Well, I would never act on it, but I certainly like daydreaming about it. What does the Bible say? As a man thinketh in his heart, what? So is he. That is what we are. 
So let's be careful. Let's guard our minds. If we're going to follow Christ, we need to make sure that we are avoiding the idea of viciousness. Secondly, we need to follow by abandoning vindication. Notice verse 23. He was reviled. He reviled not again. Very similar here. But he, while he was reviled, or we would say insulted, and they were saying all kinds of mean things, trying to rile up Jesus while he was on the cross, yet he did not retaliate. And this goes right to our pride. When we hear things said, when something is posted on social media, to put it in our modern era, sometimes we just feel like, well, I've got to comment. And sometimes that's the worst thing we could do, is to post a comment. And, and I've really tried, you know, when I see things, I'm like, you know, Lord, help me. To, if it can be a teachable thing, you know, if there's something where you're called upon me to help shepherd people. But if I know my heart, and, you know, we do know our hearts, if we're honest. We'll know what the Spirit is. And there's been times when I've seen something and I've like, hmm. I don't want people thinking that of my church, or I don't want people thinking that of me and feeling like I need to post out of the idea of personal vindication. We need to be very careful, because what we're doing, we're taking care of our pride. That's not a good thing to do. We, we want aggressors and others to know that we're right and they're wrong. You've got to put them in their place. Notice Hebrews 12, verse 3, it says, for consider him, take a long look, peer at your example in Jesus Christ. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. How, how, in other words, how spiteful they were being towards him. Lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. If we didn't have Jesus, and we didn't have the stories in the gospel of how Jesus handled himself, and then we had to go through the Christian life, putting up with all we put up with, when people saying things and doing things and behaving towards us in certain ways, we would just be so wrung out emotionally, wouldn't we? We'd just be like, I cannot do this. But what this verse is teaching is us is as we just keep going back, taking a good long glance at Jesus, reminding ourselves of who He was, what He did, what He's still doing for us, that's how we don't give up the process. We don't become weary and faint in our minds. Isaiah 53, verse 7 tells us that like a sheep submits quietly to the shearing process. It's time to have the wool taken off, right? It says, Jesus in the same way opened not His mouth. Quiet. You know, if you don't know precisely what the Spirit filled thing is to say what the god controlled thing is to say best not say nothing at all right don't say anything at all one person said you know it's better to keep your mouth closed and to have some people think you're a fool than to open your mouth and to take away all doubt and we often take away all the doubt when we're like, well, let me set the record straight here, right? 
The Bible warns us as believers in the church, right? I mean, even brothers and sisters in Christ, we're supposed to be getting along better than anyone else. You're like, oh, pastor, I thought you were talking about how I'm responding to the world, you know? People that aren't saved, aren't believers. No, but you know what? Sometimes Christians don't get along. Shh. It happens. Yeah, unfortunately, it does happen. More than once I've had someone come to me and said, you know, I was so looking forward to going to work in a Christian school or, you know, I got a part-time job in a church and I was thinking, great, I have a work environment where there's no problems. No, there's problems. In fact, sometimes there's greater or different kinds of problems because we, we do kind of put our guard down, you know. Maybe too much so. We're not walking carefully, as the Bible reminds us we're supposed to walk carefully. And we, we do let our tongue wag too much or say things it shouldn't say. So in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 6, Paul's talking to these believers in the town of Corinth. And they weren't handling things as they should because they had this spirit of vindication. <laughs> no one's going to walk all over me, right? Notice what it says. But brother goeth to law with brother. Talking about a believer against a believer going to civil court. And that before unbelievers. In other words, in that day and age, the court kind of met in the marketplace. You would go out into the main thoroughfare. They had what was called a bema seat. So it was open air. And so if you had a grievance, everybody knew about it, right? And so they were coming often, and it was an issue that needed to be resolved inside the church. But they weren't doing that. And he goes on to say in verse 7, Now therefore, there is utterly a fault among you. And what is that fault? Because ye go to law with one another. Paul doesn't even deal with person A and person B, plaintiff and defendant, as to who is right. He said the real problem here isn't what you're bringing to the judge to decide. The problem is that you're there at the judge in the first place. That's the real problem. He says, it would be better, he, said, he asked the question, why do you not rather take wrong? In other words, if you believe you're in the right, wouldn't it be better for you to allow yourself to be taken advantage of? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Why? Because what was happening is the unsaved people who weren't Christians that were watching this was like, <laughs> yeah, my neighbor's been telling me about Jesus and about me needing to be saved and stuff, but look at those guys over there. They can't even get along. They're no different than I am. Why do I need to be a Christian? Why do I need Jesus? Right? And Paul's like, listen, if you're disputing a, a boundary between yourselves or, you know, if you didn't feel like you got the, the, the right quality of livestock in the exchange, you know, take it up with the leadership within the church. Resolve it privately. By putting it out to public opinion, you're really harming the testimony of Jesus Christ in the church. It'd be better for you to let those pigs or that boundary go untended. We had a situation here many years ago where this exact thing happened. And I, re, and I really regret that some of our folks were taken advantage by another believer. 
And, and I remember one family in particular just said, you know, I know what the Bible teaches here. And, and they were out a lot of money because of it was an investment type approach of things. And I remember this, this very godly brother in Christ saying to me, he says, you know, Pastor, God can bring the money back to me. He says, but the last thing I would want to do is to cause unsaved people to look and say, look, even you Christians, this, this Jesus doesn't work for you, obviously. And you know what? I heard by testimony much later from this family, God did supply, bring it back in other ways. God can do that, right? But if you say, I've got to get the last word. I need to prove my innocence. I've got to have closure. I'm not going to take this lying down. Well, you know, are these the ways which the abundance of the heart speaks? Before you respond next time, we need to ask ourselves, what good for God's glory will come by my addressing this issue this way? And after all, in Romans 12, 19, doesn't God say, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord? God can take care of those situations. We don't need to feel like we've got to personally have a hand in it. We need to follow Jesus. What a great example he was in abandoning vindication. And lastly, we need to follow by focusing on the victory. In verse 24, it says, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that, in other words, he went to the cross, he died on the cross. Why did he do that? That we being dead to sins. In other words, spiritually we were dead. We needed spiritual life. Only Jesus could provide that. And He did, went to the cross while we were dead to sins so that we should live unto righteousness. And it's by His stripes, and those stripes are the whipping stripes, aren't they? As the Roman soldiers were scourging Him. He was punished. Was Jesus guilty of the crimes that they were saying He was guilty of? No. But He took upon Himself our sins. He, was, he became our substitute. And so as Jesus went through all of that, you know what he was keeping in mind? Victory. He was looking beyond the moment of the pain and the suffering, and he was looking to the end goal. Because the cross is, though it's a very painful and a dis disgusting event in history, it's also glorious. Because it brought about victory over sin. For him? No, for us. He did it for you and me. He died on the cross because we can't pay for our own sins. We can't be good enough to get into heaven. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of our sin is death, eternal punishment from God. But if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's victory. It was because he was so focused on the ultimate end and purpose. When he cried out on the cross, you remember these words in John 19.30? It is finished. The Greek words that probably came forth out of his lips were tetelestai. That's one word in Greek, but it literally means it is finished. What is finished? It, it wasn't at that exact moment that they took him off the cross. The crucifixion process was, was still there, but he immediately gave up the ghost. The price of mankind's 
sin being paid for was done. What a victory. We sing victory in Jesus. We need to realize we have victory because of what Jesus has done. We have not struggled ourselves like Jesus has struggled. We haven't had the kind of life that Jesus had when he was humanly walking around on earth. I mean, let's face it. Who of us has been crucified on a Roman cross? None of us. That was the most excruciating torture of the day. It was the most humiliating torture of the day. And that's why Hebrews 12, 4 says to Christians, you have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. You know, you think it's pretty tough being a Christian and fighting against sin day after day, trying to say no to the wrong things, dealing with people that don't appreciate your Christianity. But listen, you haven't gone as far as Jesus had to go. Don't forget that. It's all about keeping the right perspective. A great passage for recalibrating ourselves. You might want to mark this down. I, I go back to it often in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. There's about eight verses that I just want to read here. In 2 Corinthians 4.15 it says, For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through thanksgiving of many rebound to the glory of God. In other words, everything that you're going through is for your benefit and also to bring God glory. Then he goes on in verse 16 to say, For which cause we faint not. You know, we don't throw in the towel. But though our outward man perishes, and we are wearing down, aren't we, folks? Every day, we have less energy, less strength, less stamina. And even though, as we move forward in life, our outward man is perishing, the Bible says our inward man is renewed day by day. How is that happening? From our time in the Word of God, from the Holy Spirit working in us. We get stronger in our spiritual nature. Verse 17, for our light affliction. Oh, wait a minute. Paul can say that. My affliction's not so light. I've got it pretty tough. You, do you have a, a couple hours? Let me tell you about my childhood. I don't care what your background story is. Compared to our Savior, we have light affliction. And guess what? You can always find another human being besides Jesus who probably has it a lot worse than you've had it too. I mean, we sometimes, when we get a little bit out of kilter in our home and we find ourselves kind of, you know, complaining about something and then we catch ourselves, we often say, you know, well, that's a first world problem, right? And maybe you've said that too. Why? Because people in, in the areas geographically we call the third world. I mean, there are people, I mean, we're complaining because our Wi-Fi is slow. And there are people that don't have potable water to drink. They have to go and get their drinking water from the same stream that the village above them is using as their john. And we think we have problems, right? We truly have light affliction, which is but for a moment. And really, our lifetime, if our whole lifetime is just one big problem, that's still a moment in perspective to eternity. So our light affliction was but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. God's using it for our good, to bring us to an end. Verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen in the here and now, but the things which are not seen, that's eternal, 
For the things which are seen here are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So it's all about perspective, isn't it? What is a little mistreatment in the overall scheme of things? You know, and maybe even this morning you got up and you were kind of grumbling and complaining about something or someone or whatever, and you're reading less and you're thinking about Christ, our example, and you're like, shut my mouth. And I say, amen, right? I need to say that to myself. Just, Carl Wood, just be quiet. Just stop and meditate on Jesus, who he is, what he's done. You have it so good. And if we can go through what little bit of struggles are light affliction, and we can do it with the right spirit, we might, in demonstrating grace, it might bring someone else to Christ. William Barclay wrote, he's a commentator on books of the Bible, William Barclay wrote of an old Roman coin that it was once found with the picture of an ox on it. And the ox was facing two things. He was looking at an altar, and he was also looking at a plow, and the inscription read, ready for either. Ready for either. The ox had to be ready either for the supreme moment of sacrifice on the altar, or the long labor of the plow on the farm. In 1814, it was used in an emblem of the American Baptist Foreign Missionary Society. They took that same picture and made sort of their, their monogram out of that. And you can see the ox on it looking at both the, the plow and the, the, uh, the altar and saying, ready for both. What a great mantra, what a great theme for someone going to be a missionary, right? You know, I'm going out to serve. I'm going to put my hand to the plow to serve Jesus Christ on the foreign missionary field, to tell people across the ocean about Jesus. Great. But if I die, or if I have to give up seeing my family again for many, many years, or ever again, some missionaries that went overseas never saw their families back in the States again. That's the altar. Would we agree that that's a good motto for a missionary? Is it a good motto for us? Shouldn't we have that same motto? Because isn't that the, really the life of Jesus Christ? He came to minister, to serve, not to be ministered unto. That's the plow. I mean, and his ministry for three and a half years on planet Earth was not an easy one. But he also went to the cross. He gave his all, didn't he? And Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us the same thing, that we need to present our bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. It's our reasonable service. You know, there is one cup for Christian living to drink from. It's sacrifice. We are to be a living sacrifice and also a faithful servant every day. That's what our Savior did. He left us an example. Christ our example. And so today, there's no question that Christ's example is a good one. The question is, how well are we following it? How well are we lifted up and, and keep things in perspective in our own minds and our own responses? I pray that that will be something that the Spirit of God walks us into by His strength more and more as the days go by. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ Jesus, our Savior, our Lord. We thank you that we have salvation because he died on the cross on our behalf. And it is a wonderful, simple truth that all we have to do is to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved and to believe in our heart that you have raised him from the dead, to put all of our dependence upon Jesus Not our own goodness, not to think that hopefully our good will outweigh our bad. Someday we'll get into heaven. No, we realize that all of our our best deeds still, at best, are still flawed. We can never be good enough in our own works. But Jesus was good enough in our behalf. And He washes away our sin. Lord, I pray that if there's any here today that has never truly put all their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that today they would do that. They'd open their heart, pray, and invite Jesus to be their Lord and Savior. But Lord, for those that are here today and say, I know that I'm a Christian, I pray that you would help guide each and every one of us to get a better grip on following Jesus as our suffering example not complaining about our light troubles in this world, keeping it in perspective. And we'll put all this into your almighty hands. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.